you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you're new here, or maybe you've kind of missed out here and there, we are working through a series and in our theme of preparing to build, and we have kind of three main building blocks that we have been focusing on, and they're over here, biblical values, biblical training, biblical deacons, and we have worked through, at least from the pulpit, on biblical values, and we are now working on biblical training. Pastor Tony hit on the sexual revolution. I hit on last week God and government out of Romans 13, and today we're going to hit on the issue of abortion. Now, these are going to be the three kind of main cultural issues that we're going to hit from the pulpit. There's many others, issues of cultural Marxism, Christian nationalism, some of those things that are definitely plaguing society. But the question is, how do you, how do you preach that uh, very concisely? Nicely packaged in one little sermon on a Sunday, right? So we plan on, just so you know, as far as values, training, and deacons is not confined only to the pulpit. This is why we have a teaching ministry, equipping ministry, and so forth. We plan on continuing to move forward with these things as a church. And so after today's sermon, we will be focusing on Easter, and then after Easter into biblical deacons. So I've been tasked with this issue of abortion. And so what I want to tell you up front, if you didn't read the message that I put on Church Center, if you're not on Church Center, I have no intention of getting into like super graphic details, pictures, language, imagery. And that's not because I'm afraid to do so or that we don't need to hear those things. We do. But today is not the day for that because where we need to start first is a biblical foundation for the response of a Christian to those who are being slaughtered or taken to death or murdered. And then from that point, our goal and our plan is to have more conversation, in-depth conversation, methods, tactics, and how we handle this issue because it's not a one-size-fits-all. And so with that, you guys saw there's a table out in the hallway I don't know how many there are, maybe a couple hundred of these pamphlets. I want every single one of you to take one of these, and you're welcome to take extra. Friend of of mine, Pastor Dusty Devers out in Oklahoma, is the leader of this organization called Rescue Those, and I got these from him this last summer. And some of you know Dusty really well, and even people like Adam has interacted with Dusty several times in dealing with Uh, abolition, and so forth. But I want to start this message out of Proverbs 24. My goal is to preach the context of Proverbs 24 with the understanding that our response to abortion fits in the contextual application of the passage. Okay? So, let me begin by introducing the subject here by reading the opening paragraph out of this pamphlet. If you have it, you can see it on page 6. And they write, The word holocaust means destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. It is obvious why the atrocities that happened to those who suffered under the heels of the Nazi regime are now synonymous with the very word 
Holocaust. Yet there is another slaughter of an even greater scale, and it is still happening every day in even the most modern and civilized nations. Holocaust is almost too weak of a word to communicate what has happened to over 60 million innocent children in the United States of America alone since 1973, and those are only the numbers that are reported. As you read this ongoing paragraph, three children were unjustly slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers in the United States. By the time you finish reading this booklet, which I pray to God you will, about 200 babies will have been butchered under cover of law. By the end of day, around 2,400 of your pre-born neighbors will have been murdered through what has so politely been termed abortion. This has been happening every single day for almost 50 years. The question that this booklet seeks to ask and to answer is this. What does Jesus command from you and me who are in Christ when it comes to the abortion holocaust happening around us? My answer, because it is the answer God gives in Scripture, is this. As Christ has rescued us, we must rescue others. That's heavy. It's really heavy. And so just kind of as a preface to this message, to the mothers here who have participated in the act of abortion, there is grace and forgiveness. There is healing. In Christ, there's not ongoing shame and guilt. You know, we know what happened was not right, is not good, is wrong. But your sin cannot outsin the grace of God. We know that for many of you who have been trying to have children for a long time and you cannot, you're watching men and women abort their children, murder their children, left and right, and you can't even have one. And so it angers you, it frustrates you. Sometimes you wish vengeance could be yours. But I just want to help calm your soul that vengeance is the Lord's. Rest in Christ. And what I want to call all of us to do is to take up faith and courage. It doesn't matter if you've participated in this act. It doesn't matter if you haven't. We all must take up our faith in Christ and have the courage to act. God is not looking at us going, man, you've really messed this up. Now if you, if you act out and speak out against us, then you're a hypocrite. No, that's not what the gospel says. And so I want to call all of you to that sort of faithful courage and humility. As we work through this issue in the days to, to come, it is going to be a mess. We're going to fumble all over the place. We're going to say the wrong things. We're going to think the wrong things. We're going to consider the wrong steps of actions all along the way. But we must be humble towards one another. Careful. But at the same time, courageous to stand in truth. Having said that, if you would, please stand with me in the reading of God's Word from Proverbs chapter 24. And I'm going to just read the three verses Verses 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, 
your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Father, this is your word. May we hear it and understand it. May we obey it. Father, give me the words to preach. Father, give us the ears to hear. I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. To kind of build up this point here, Proverbs isn't exactly one of those books of the Bible that we, I mean, we go to because it has a lot of proverbial sayings, right? A lot of pithy sayings and things that are just good to have on magnets or t-shirts or, you know, principles to live by. But sometimes we don't really understand what does this have to do with the entire Bible? Because you can go anywhere and you can, you can get proverbial sayings from any religion anywhere at any time. But for some reason, these proverbs specifically here in the Bible have to do with the Bible. And so to kind of paint a little bit of context here, first and foremost, the author of the book of Proverbs is historically attributed to Solomon. It says it right there in the first chapter. It also says it in chapter 10. But if you're reading the book of Proverbs in its entirety, you'll notice that there's actually multiple authors. It's kind of like the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are attributed to David, but at the same time, there are Psalms that are not David's explicitly. And so much like the Psalms, how the Psalms are written kind of over a course of time and then compiled into this book, you have the same with the book of Proverbs. So not every proverb in here is the proverb of Solomon. But there still is question, which ones are and which ones are not? And the structure of the book of Proverbs is kind of broken into two categories. You have chapters 1 through 7, or excuse me, chapters 1 through 9, and then chapters 10 through 31. In chapters 1 through 9, you have what is called maybe the introduction or the preamble to the book of Proverbs. That's really fleshed out in the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapters 8 and 9, you have wisdom personified. This woman wisdom who comes out. And then chapters 10 through 31, what you have then, with the backdrop and understanding of the preamble and wisdom personified, you then have wisdom sayings. And chapters 10 through 31 can sometimes seem like just a shotgun approach to proverbial sayings, just like a bunch of random things put together. And it seems that way, but it's not always that way. And we'll see that some today. But something we need to be aware of as we're dealing with the book of Proverbs, some awareness here, is that wisdom is also about timing. Not everything in a a proverb is to be in every single situation of every single day. Rather, proverbs have their timing, have their place, have their use. That's why the proverbs also speak of prudence. There's a time and a season for a certain proverb. And not every situation requires every single proverb all the time. So timing is a big deal in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is poetry. It's not narrative. 
It's not an epistle like Paul's epistle here, but it is poetry much like the Psalms, meaning it comes with compact, right, compact sayings that really just pack a punch. It gets to the point, and it gets to the point real quick. The book of Proverbs is also not just a list of promises in this way, that if you train up a child in the Lord, then they will stay true to those teachings all of their days. The Proverbs is not saying that if you do X, then Y will always happen. If you're a godly parent and you train your children up in the Lord, then the result will be that they will always be godly for all time. That's not what the Proverbs are speaking about. The Proverbs are also, it's not a collection of redemptive history. Meaning, the book of Proverbs is not telling the ongoing story from Genesis to Revelation as though picking up the narrative. It is neither giving really any sort of indication or clues of covenants along the way. Rather, the book of Proverbs is giving us wisdom sayings in that the people of Israel are to use the book of Proverbs in knowing how to live a godly life. And so while it doesn't do those things, the book of Proverbs is theological. And it is Christian. And so it is theological in that wisdom is defined in two ways. Right? It's really hard to have this super concise definition of wisdom just from the book of Proverbs, but we know it is defined in kind of two ways. The first one is by relationship. That is fear of the Lord, right? The beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. Chapter one, verse seven, chapter three, verses five and eight. And so to not have a relational connection to the Lord by way of reverential fear in all means you are not wise. This is why this is different than the world. And it is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, meaning these Proverbs are exclusively for, from our God to us believers in Christ. The second way wisdom is defined in the Proverbs is through person. So relationship and then person. In chapters 8 and 9, you have wisdom personified. It just goes from this kind of descriptive characteristic of who a person is, like this makes you wise when you do X, Y, and Z, to I am wisdom, and when you follow me, this happens. Let me show you in chapter 8. Let me read chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me, talking about wisdom, wisdom personified. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old, ages ago I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth And there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. 
when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. You have the way of wisdom personified. You have the way of folly even personified. And this is part of the theological component of the book of Proverbs. In that as you are walking a certain path in life, you either are walking in relationship with the Lord and with the Lord himself, or you are, which is wisdom, or you are walking in the way of folly or foolishness. And depending on the path you walk will depend on how these Proverbs affect you or impact you. The New Testament makes very clear that wisdom personified is Christ. Church history makes very clear that wisdom personified in Proverbs chapters 8 and 9 is none other than Christ. Let me give you just a couple quick examples. First is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, which says this, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What we see here is that Christ is the wisdom of God. Secondly, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, talking about Jesus being preeminent. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I highlight this passage because church history is in agreement with this, that when especially a Jew, a converted Jew, heard Paul's writings there in Colossians chapter 1, they were immediately taken to Proverbs chapters 8 and 9. That Christ is the firstborn. He is the preeminent one. And He is the one in whom the Father delights. He was there in the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is wisdom personified. And so as believers, we have a relationship with Christ. As believers, we are to walk in step with Christ. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament were to walk in step with woman wisdom. So we are to walk in step with Christ by faith. And so having kind of built the stage of the book of Proverbs, which will, which will be necessary for when we get to verses 10 through 12. Here's the focus. The Christian response to abortion. The Christian response to abortion. Verse 10. If you faint, and so I'm in Proverbs 24, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That's a strange saying, it seems. Talking about a day of adversity, okay, there's some sort of conflict that is going to be taking place. And if you are faint in that day, if you grow weary in that day, 
then your strength is small. Strength as, as in what? Jump back up to verses 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool, and the gate he does not open his mouth. And so the strength that the author of Proverbs is speaking about here is strength that is built by wisdom. That is the strength. That word wisdom meaning to have skill or dexterity. The ability to do something here. And so in verse 10, when you deal with adversity, you need to be grounded in wisdom because if not... You will not be strong. And you also need to be established by understanding. So you need to have wisdom and understanding. Talking about verses 3 through 7. That understanding meaning having the ability, the logic. Right? So if you're thinking of building a house here. Okay, I have the skill. I have the ability, the dexterity to build a house. And now comes the logical understanding of it what comes first the foundation and then after that and after that and verses three through seven also explain to us then not not only after we do we have wisdom then we are to have understanding but then to have knowledge and knowledge leads to action this knowledge is a discernment on how or when or with what we are to do the building So once the house is built, and we have understanding of that, then the person with knowledge goes and fills the house, and fills the rooms. And when you have that, verses 5 and 6 shows us, wisdom gives us full strength. It gives us full strength. On the backdrop of chapters 8 and 9, understanding wisdom personified and also wisdom as being the fear of the Lord, that is what is being communicated here. If you do not have the fear of the Lord, and if you are not walking in step with the Lord, then you are weak. And when adversity comes, because it will, you will be weak and you won't be able to do a thing. You must have full strength and wisdom. And when you have that, then your knowledge will be enhanced, it says in verses 5 and 6. And then you will have guidance in waging the right kind of war. And doing the right kind of thing. And then it will lead you also to the right kind of counsel. And when you have the right kind of counsel, that leads to victory. And so it's as though the author of Proverbs is kind of setting the stage here. Before you do what is going to be commanded in verse 11, you must be strengthened in the wisdom of Yahweh, of God Himself. So church, this is why it's important that we have a biblical basis before we get into the tactics or even the strategies of how to engage the issue of abortion in our society We have to be ready and grounded in full strength and wisdom. And how do we do that? By the word of God. 
by walking in step with the Spirit, continual repentance, faith, worship, you cannot endure. If you try to do it apart from Christ, you're doing it in the wisdom of the world, which is no wisdom at all, but folly and foolishness. And so are you grounded in full strength and wisdom? And let me just make this very clear. There's nothing that you can do that can muster up your wisdom to be at full strength and capacity. In Christ, you have the fullness of wisdom. You need to go to Him. He applies that fullness of wisdom on your behalf to you. And so it's as simple as this. You must be turning to Christ. If the slightest insult, the slightest criticism, the slightest pushback just sinks you and puts you to the side, then you are not ready to face this monstrous problem. So therefore, having set that as the foundation, we are to, in verse 11, to rescue. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. That word rescue is the command here. It is the imperative. And it is written in the plural. Second person, meaning you all. Whoever is reading this, If they're walking by faith, if they're walking in the ways of God, here's your command. Rescue those who are being delivered over to death. That means to rescue, to save, to snatch, to plunder. These are all words that we see throughout all of Scripture. Plundering the Egyptians, snatching someone from the fire. This is the characteristic of someone who follows God closely. Don't mistake God is not saying you're the one who's saving them for salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about their human life as a neighbor, your love for them, your care for them. God is the one who does the saving. He is the one who brings them into eternity, not you and me. But what God is calling us to do is to image him. He's not calling us to replace him but to image Him, to imitate Him, to be like Him in how we live in the world. And who are we to rescue? Those who are being taken to death. Those who are undergoing unjust death and punishment. It doesn't matter if it's abortion. It doesn't matter if it's chattel slavery. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Um, the Jews in the time of Nazi Germany, it's talking about an unjust death at any time, at any place. This proverb is applicable in that way. And for our sake, we are focusing it on the issue of abortion. Now consider this. In light of what we talked about last week in Romans 13, 1-7 regarding God and government. I was very clear That we are to have a humble posture towards governing authorities because that is the way that God had set it in place. He He has a purpose for governing authorities, maintaining some sort of order in a fallen world so that everything doesn't completely implode and just go into utter chaos. And he tells us in 
verse 4, that one of the functions of the government is to punish evildoers or those who are wicked. And that is something we agree with. Yes, this is what God wants you to do. But in the case when a government steps out of line and begins to act like a tyrant, you can defy him. Not only a government, but individuals, entities, organizations. When they begin to do something that is clearly outside the explicit will of God, you can disobey them, you can defy them, because you and I are called to act like our God in that situation. They are not God. We know this. But neither are you or me. And who are we rescuing? Those. Those being carried to the slaughter. People. There's no qualifier that this is a Christian or a non-Christian, young or old. This is a person made in the image and the likeness of God. Remember back in Biblical Values of Honor, we opened up Psalms chapter 8, verse 6, talking about all people being made in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. Those who are outside of Christ have a crown on their head, but it is marred by sin. Those of us who are in Christ have a perfected crown, wrapped up in Christ alone, in His glory, in His honor. But nonetheless, it doesn't matter. All image bearers behold a crown of glory and honor. And this happens in the womb. We read that in the opening scripture passage. How we are knit together in our mother's womb. We are giving a name. We are known immediately by God. Personally, intimately, right away. And so the moment that we try to act, and I'm saying we because all of us without Christ are evil and are not above abortion or murder. But the moment that we think that we're something or that we're on top or that we're God, we want to take anything that God creates and take it into our own hands and make it our own. God, you can make that watch. I can take it away. Oh God, you designed us To be this way, watch, I'm saying we can be designed for another purpose. It's the arrogance, the evil, the insidious nature of our broken souls. Our culture does not see babies in the womb as people. We we tend to think, and sometimes, honestly, as believers, we think the same thing. We do. This reminded me, just pastorally speaking, man, over the years we have seen so many babies come into our church. Now some of them are getting older and it kind of freaks me out a little bit because I'm like, wow, I still think I'm 25 years old. And I look in the mirror, I'm like, you don't look 25. But that child looks like an adult and I remember when they were born. (laughs) But we've also lost a lot of babies. So many miscarriages. So many tragedies. In 2015, there were three times in that year, and I don't think exclusively, that we 
we mourn the loss of human life that never lived outside the womb. Aaliyah Lynn Gomer, our daughter, 39 weeks, February 1st, 2015. Clive Anthony Evans, 14 and a half weeks, November 20th, 2015. I don't know where the Cunninghams are, but Uriah Dale Cunningham, 17 weeks. January 19th, 2016. All within one year. There were memorials. There were funerals. There was crying. There was also healing. We didn't bury a cluster of cells. We buried image bearers. People who had a pumping heart. Eyes, ears, arms, legs. But sometimes, because we can't see those things, we just say, well, it doesn't exist. It's the, I can't see it. Well, that doesn't apply. The hear no evil, see no evil. That doesn't make any sense. But these are real people who will physically rise in the resurrection. What are we to do? We rescue those being taken to the slaughter. People just like our children that we've lost along the way or children that we have birthed along the way. We're to hold them back as they are stumbling to the slaughter. That idea of stumbling is this staggering, almost like a drunk man staggering to the slaughter. The image of them being beaten Severely punished, tortured by the one who's been oppressing them, and then carrying them out to be publicly executed. The call here in the idea of holding back is to restrain, to plead, to put your life out on the line for the sake of the one who is being carried to the slaughter unjustly. A beautiful picture of this is Queen Esther. When she goes before her husband, the king, knowing that if she enters into the courts without being invited, she runs the risk of being put to death. But she knows that her people, the Jewish people, are about to be unjustly put to death, slaughtered. And so what does she do? In great wisdom and understanding and knowledge of what's going on, She walks in step with her God and she enters into that room where her husband, the king, is and pleads and begs. Puts her life on the line. And this is what we are to do. And why? Because this is what Christ has also done for us. He has rescued us. He has saved us. He has delivered us from not just death this side of heaven, but from eternal death. From the oppressor himself known as Satan, 
But ultimately, those taskmasters who constantly are whipping, you know, cracking the whip over our souls every single day, calling us to come back into a way of sinful life and living. Jesus has come and He has plundered them. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into His marvelous light. And as a result, we have a fearful, loving relationship with Him by the power of His Spirit so we are able to walk in step with wisdom as a result of His rescuing us. And so Jesus is calling us, church, to be like Him. When you and I step in and we intervene for those who cannot stand for themselves, who are being wrongfully slaughtered or murdered, we are coming in and we are presenting really a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. This is what makes us distinguishable from the world. Because there's a lot of non-believers who don't like the government. There's a lot of non-believers that don't like abortion. A lot of non-believers who are activists and are going against these things. But there must be something that is different about us. When we go out and we rescue, when we go out and we oppose tyranny, when we go out and do those things, it is because Christ compels us and moves us. And so we are to rescue. We are to put our life on the line. I think I said something that made this iPad just light up. It was a little scary it's listening to me, Adam. That's your iPad. The government's listening to you, man. And they should. <laughs> so we are to get wisdom. We are to rescue. We are to know. Verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We did not know is to say, I mean, I had no idea. I didn't hear anything. I didn't know anything. It's like the Germans, after the war was over and the concentration camps were found, and they were coming out like, oh, I didn't know that there was a concentration camp just on the other side of those trees over there. They knew. We know what's going on. We are aware. I mean, is it possible that we did not know that babies were being murdered? Is that possible? Really possible. And if it is, okay, there is... There's understanding that maybe you've just been living in a completely different planet at this point. But now you know. It's true. And so now what are you going to do about it? Wisdom leads to just action. It does not lead to apathy. Apathy saying... It doesn't really affect me, though. I mean, I don't see it. It's not like a concentration camp where I can see the smoke billowing up. 
It's not like where this giant property is fenced off by razor wire and I can actually see starving people. It's not the same thing. It's behind closed doors and, you know, people seem to be doing okay. That's been my greatest sin. Apathy. I don't see it, so I mean, it's whatever. I don't really hear about it much. I mean, I've had conversations. I've talked to family members. I've talked to a family member out of having an abortion. But really, I mean, it just doesn't affect my day-to-day. So what? why? That's my deepest sin, for sure. And isn't it interesting that the Proverbs is putting it this way? You have a command to do this, but let me go ahead and go ahead and answer your objections. You're going to say that you didn't have any idea this was going on, but let me just let let you know that God is aware of your heart. He's aware of your soul. You may pull the wool over the eyes of your fellow neighbor, fellow man, but you're not going to fool God. And do you really want to stand before him on judgment? And plead the case, well, I didn't have any idea. Will that stand? And understand, we cannot sit here and tackle every issue on the planet Earth. But this is why the biblical value of stewardship is important. Not only are we stewarding money and relationships, but we're stewarding knowledge. We steward our citizenship in this country, in this state, in this city. We're not called to act in isolation of everything. We're supposed to act in it. We're supposed to steward our influence, steward our knowledge, and do something. And the author of Proverbs here is also kind of preemptive. We know that when you see, you and I see something that is not right, some form of injustice, Man, we can get red hot. We get angry real fast. But the author of Proverbs is saying, if you read 13 and on, that you are not to lie in wait, verse 15, lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do, not, do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble times in times of calamity. So as we act, as we go, as we rescue, we are not to act like the world. Vengeance is the Lord's. This is why we must have a posture of humility in regards to all of humanity. Even tyrants. And I'm not saying you bow down to them. I'm not saying that at all. But understand, you and I are not God. He is going to deal with them. You and I are to just act. Live the way that God has called us to live, which is still distinct from the world, even as you have to oppose tyranny. So wisdom leads to action. Just action. Not apathy. You want an illustration for apathy? Here it is in verse 30 of the same chapter. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. 
and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's the picture of a sluggard. If you want to talk about apathy at work, it's like, well, maybe I'll get to it another time. Maybe we'll do it later. And eventually that inaction leads to continual inaction. Continual inaction. And that's what the wise does not do. We know. We know the one who keeps watch over our soul. And the, pro, the, the author says, will he not repay? Will he not repay? This is where it is essential that you and I have the fear of the Lord. This is where it is essential that you and I have the right kind of relationship with God. Because if we don't fear the Lord, then we do not fear his judgment. What are you going to do to me? But a right fear deals with apathy, deals with sin, deals with turning a blind eye, and moves towards the Lord in that way. There's going to be a judgment, a judgment towards the fool. And a judgment towards the fool, you can capture that in verses 8 and 9. Well, this is what the fool looks like. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So this foolish person, this person of folly, is also meaning it's, they are impious. They, are, they think that they are preeminent. They think that they are the highest power, the highest authority. They're the ones who are scheming evil and plotting these, these plans of killing and murdering because who's going to touch me? And it may be a leader of an organization, or it just may be a man and a woman who have conceived, and they think, you know what, we have preeminence here, we're going to be done with this child. That is the mark of a fool. And this is judgment against them. And that fool devises evil schemes. They are in sin. They are an abomination for mankind. Meaning they bring in evil and they allow evil. Even celebrate evil. That is the way of a fool. But I would rather be on the side of being judged as wise. For the one who is judged as wise, they're the ones who take off the folly. They take off the foolishness and they put on wisdom. They put on Christ. Just like Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, right? The taking off of the old self, putting on the new self, living in the ways of Christ. No more apathy. No more turning a blind eye. No more ignoring the command to rescue. Now I will do it and I will do it in step, in full strength, with Christ. The wisdom of God. Because adversity will come and I cannot shrink back. I need his strength in this hour. And it is that, that is what will spare you in the day of judgment. Faith in Christ alone. And that wisdom, true wisdom, 
I don't know what I'm doing. I know I'm rattling speakers up here. Sorry about that. Leads to true knowledge. And that true knowledge leads to true action. Another way to put it, faith with works. Because faith without works is dead. It's folly. It's foolishness. But to rescue those is putting our faith to work. And so how do we need to respond, church? How do we need to respond with this? There's going to come time, I understand, we didn't get in the depths and the stats and, and all the, the weeds regarding abortion. But we need to deal with our hearts first. We need to hear what God has to actually say about those who are being put to death. And then ask ourselves, are we going to obey God or not? Let us respond with a wisdom, first and foremost, found in Christ. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not going to Him in prayer, if you're not worshiping Him, if you're not receiving Him in faith, you are unwise. Hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying legalism is the key. What I'm saying is that desire, that hunger, that thirst for Christ alone, for His Word, for Him. If you don't hunger for Him, then you will just be squashed when adversity comes. I think we need to consider courage. The courage to rescue, which means we put ourselves out there. We make ourselves vulnerable. We put our name out there. And in this day and age, when you get known, you're known publicly and eternally on the internet. But we have to have the courage then. And so you need to wrestle with this. What has God given you? He's given you wisdom. Do you know this? What ability is it that you do have? That's understanding. Understand, you have words. You have a mind. You have, you have all these different resources and ways of thinking and doing things. Get that wisdom, that understanding, and then act. Act. That's all that God is telling you to do. Now, the methods of how we act and what we do, we are still trying to work through that as a church-wide body. But understand this. You have a responsibility as an individual to do something. The scriptures are speaking to you. So what are you going to do about it? Maybe we need to repent today for apathy, constantly making excuses, constantly pushing it off. We'll get to it eventually. Being like a sluggard. Or maybe we need to repent for presuming upon the blood of Christ, thinking that maybe he would be apathetic towards our apathy. Maybe Jesus will just skip over our apathy by himself being apathetic. And maybe we need to just repent of devaluing life in general. It's really easy to devalue life 
because our worlds exist around us. Us and maybe the two or three people that are super close to us and that we don't really care about anyone else. This is the idea of the honor-shame culture versus the guilt-innocence side sort of culture. We are the guilt-innocence, right-wrong type of culture. If I'm individually right, it doesn't matter. If it affects you and makes you upset, what does that matter to me? But the honor-shame culture says, how I act and what I do impacts those even around us. And so we have to begin to shift our perspective and how can we honor one another? And we honor one another by valuing them as image bearers. And so we need to get wisdom. We need to rescue. And we need to know. And so what I want you to do also is take one of these pamphlets and go home, read it, mark it up, pray over it, Read it with your family, your spouse, whoever it is. Talk about it at life group. Have the conversation start buzzing this place. This is coming at, uh, coming at abortion from the abolitionist point of view and perspective. I know some of you have not been introduced to that. You're in the, the pro-life circles. But there's this whole movement that is happening out there. But I want you guys to read this, and I want you to understand this, and I've read this thoroughly, and there are things in here that I'm not sure I agree with, and there are things in here that some of you may not agree with. There may be things in here that make you mad or upset. There may be things in here that are a breath of fresh air, and you're like, finally, somebody put it to words. That's okay. The church body is the place where we can wrestle through these things. And so this is a tool, at least, to get us moving forward in conversation. So I want you to read, pray, discuss, and then if you would, give me any of the pastors feedback. Give us feedback. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know how, this is, how you're wrestling with these things. We want to be aware of it. But the one thing I do not want to happen, and we as pastors will not tolerate is division or discord over this. Unless it's on the issue of rescuing, but what I'm talking about is methodology. There's a lot of things that this is going to unpack. And we need to allow the space and the opportunity for everybody to wrestle through it. If we agree on the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hang there tightly and closely. It's okay if there's disagreement. We welcome the disagreement. But let's have conversation that actually moves us somewhere and challenges us. Some of us may need to change perspective. Some of us may need to beef up perspective. It doesn't matter what it is, but we will not tear one another down. It cannot happen. We will be weak if we do so. And then I want you to pray for us elders as we are planning to act. As I mentioned before, we're hoping that we can provide some sort of training conference this fall, and we're going to work on that. If it doesn't happen, it's okay, but we're moving. Pray for us in that. 
And if you're doing the work right now, I think it's, it's no hidden thing. Adam, you're involved in a lot of this stuff. Continue to invite people. If you're doing work that's different than Adam, invite people in the body. Have them join you. If you want to go and stand before Planned Parenthood and pray, if you want to call people to faith in Christ, then do it. If you want to go down on the square and preach the gospel, okay, whatever it is that the Lord has compelled you to do, go do it and then invite your brothers and sisters to do it. Because this time, if we know this, then we just need to act. And the very last thing is that there needs to be an endless supply and flood of grace and mercy. Be gracious, be kind, be merciful to one another. Let's stand out from the world in how we interact with one another and care for one another in this. Let me read this passage from Colossians 1 as a sort of benediction and close to the message from Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.